All right, phone lines are open. Let's do this. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. You know, I woke up today somehow thinking it was Saturday. Yeah, I, <laughs> Nancy and I were talking about something, and there was an issue with the utility bill, and she said, can you give him a call? I said, well, not on Saturday. She said, it's Friday. I said, it is Saturday. She pointed the computer, the date, she said, it's Friday. And I thought, oh, wait a second, it's Friday, which also explains why when I called in to do an interview earlier this morning, There was no one there to answer the phone because it was a Saturday interview. So it's Friday. That means you've got questions. We've got answers. 866-348-7884. As always, I'll get to as many calls as possible. What happens when you ask a question and I don't have an immediate answer? Well, we we look and dig. And that happened yesterday on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I was asked a question from Canadian caller Jonathan about the prohibition in Leviticus 19.19 about wearing mixed garments, mixed fabrics in our garments. And he was pointing out that even the priestly garments had different fabrics woven together. And I thought, you know, I haven't thought of that. Told him I hadn't thought of that specific question. So just dug a little deeper as I began to dig during the show and the short breaks we have, I began to realize what the best answer to that is and then dug a little more last night. We don't know exactly what the word shatnez means in Leviticus 19.19. Is it just mixed fabric in general? Is it elucidated by Deuteronomy 20-11, which says you can't wear garments with wool and linen? Is it a specific type of mesh in the garment, as some others suggest? There's widespread speculation uh, among scholars as to the origin of the word shatnez and does it come from Egyptian, etc.? What exactly does it mean? Some of the rabbis interpret it as meaning specifically the prohibition of wool and linen. That's what it was referring to. Bottom line is you could argue that it is not just a general prohibition of mixed fabrics in a garment, but a specific type of mix, as in wool and linen. Again, these were separation laws, not laws that were necessarily based on a moral or spiritual principle, but meant to teach and instruct and keep Israel recognizing purposes of separation. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's start in Eagle, Idaho. CJ, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, CJ. Are you there? Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, Thanks, sir. Thanks for taking my call. so I was actually just calling to ask about, um, I have um, heard quite a bit about a evangelist from the 50s and 60s by the name of uh, William Branham, who claimed to have a lot of um, actually prophetic words and healings and stuff around his ministry, and I was just wondering, had you ever heard about him, and what were your thoughts? Yeah, so William Branham was certainly used by God in many powerful ways, Many eyewitness testimonies, people that I knew in my early days in the Lord were at his meetings. Uh, Other friends and colleagues of mine were at his meetings. 
And he was definitely supernaturally gifted from what I understand and was used in divine healing. However, he had some weak theological background and either by pride in his own heart or through the influence of others, he began to think that he was God's great end time prophet and began to give decrees to the whole church, which is for no one to do today. That's for the word of God to do, not for a modern apostle or prophet to make decrees for the whole church. So he kind of fashioned himself an Elijah type of prophet and began to really step out of what his calling was, began to present himself as a teacher of the whole body, as opposed to a powerfully gifted uh, evangelist with a prophetic and healing ministry. And the real tragedy is because he really was supernaturally used from all accounts that I've read, that people began to follow him in a cult-like way when he died, they were sure he was going to rise from the dead and even waited months to acknowledge his death. And I have to this day, I can literally count on one hand, but I have to this day run into people who are followers of William Branham and believe that he was the last end time prophet. And so it's kind of a cult like following that he has very small, but remains to this day. But yeah, seemed to have been genuinely gifted and started out as a very humble guy but really came into some deception later in life. And there were some weak doctrinal foundations all along the way, from what I understand. And thank you very much for taking my question. That actually is very, very in-depth. So thank you for that. Yeah, sure thing. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a quick William Branham story from an eyewitness. Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist repentance preacher, man of prayer from last generation with whom I had a, deep friendship the last five years of his life, he told me a story that he got a call on short notice. Could he take Branham's place one night? That William Branham was too weak to come and minister. Could he take his place? And so Brother Len came and preached one of his classic repentance messages. And as he finishes preaching, and you think, well, that's an odd call for Leonard Ravenhill, who is not associated with a healing ministry as much as a repentance prayer revival ministry, take Branham's place. But he did. And when he finishes preaching, no sooner is he coming to the end of his message that who comes in but William Branham felt strengthened and began to then minister and then began to call out people with certain conditions that he saw in the spirit from certain places, identified them. So there was a line of people that came up. And Leonard Ravenhill's right on the platform. I witnessed to this. And he says to the woman, the first woman standing on the line who would come up for prayer for healing, he said to her, he took the mic down and he, he said to her quietly, before I can pray for your healing, you need to repent of your adulterous relationship. The man behind her with anger says, what are you talking about? That's my wife. Branham then says to him, sir, you are also in adultery and you need to repent. And he proceeds to minister to the two of them who were both in adulterous affairs, calling them to repentance Brother Len said when he was done ministering to them, nobody was left standing on the line for healing. Aha. Uh-huh. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Allison in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for, for taking my call. And thank you also for your ministry. You're very welcome. Um, I have a question about... Um, the clarity of women deacons in the churches today, um, and I would like your comments on that. Before you do that, can I give you a brief um, 
background of what I'm already aware of. Sure thing. Um, quickly, I will say that um, the scripture I'm referring to is uh, where Paul mentions Phoebe in Romans 16.1. Yep. Also, in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 is where deacons are talked about. Yep. And um, I mention that because also following that, it, I under, as I understand it, the Greek is not very specific gender-wise um, as to... Um, the, as to what a de- who a deacon can be, mm-hmm. um, and then also in some of my uh, reading online and research, I understand that uh, deaconesses were used in the early church, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox churches, and um, also it's um, mentioned that there is a possibility that the wives of the apostles worked in companions. With their uh, with their spouses in um, serving the, the females of the of the church, and um, in areas of modesty such as baptism and childbirthing and so forth. And then lastly, I wanted to say that today also there appears to be a, a need where um, women have sensitive issues still with areas of domestic violence or physical sexual abuse or modesty issues and childbirthing and so forth. Um, and right, then where, where you need, yeah. So tell you what, let me let me just jump in and and respond mm-hmm. then scripturally. And thanks for providing the background, which is very helpful as well. So the big dispute in First Timothy the third chapter is as Paul's talking about elders. He says elders must be the husband of one wife, etc. And then moving down to deacons, beginning in verse eight, deacons which are servants likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, uh, and and then. Uh, where he goes on, verse 11, some translations say their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Others say, no, it doesn't mean their wives, it means female deaconesses. And the reason that you can argue for that is, one, they don't have governmental authority, which you could say was established by God as a rule to be male. So male elders, male apostles, but... Uh, these are just in a, everyone serves, but these do not have governmental authority. Also, right. it, wouldn't make, it wouldn't make sense, you could argue, that you talk about the wives of deacons, but not the wives of elders who have more responsibility with teaching and preaching the word and leading the congregation. So mm-hmm. why give requirements for a deacon's wife and not an elder's wife? And then, as you mentioned, Phoebe in Romans 16, does it just mean she's a servant or is that a more technical term, a female deacon uh, of the mm-hmm. church? So uh, I have no issue whatsoever based on these concepts of, of women serving in a diaconal role. Again, this mm-hmm. is meeting real needs. This is helping in tangible ways. This would often be helping with food distribution, say, to widows and the poor, or, or working on those types of things that need practical uh, hands being put to our faith. So every church organization, every denomination is going to have to interpret these things and come to their own conclusions. I have zero mm-hmm. problem whatsoever with women serving in a diaconal way. And mm-hmm. for sure, uh, if, if it was, even if there was not a specific role laid out, there are a million different ways where a woman can serve and where women need women to meet their needs and minister to them 
as you said. Uh, as, as to the wise of the apostles, in terms of Scripture, that's not mentioned in any explicit way, except that, that most, if, if not all, had wives other than Paul. But uh, that would also be logical in that Timothy instructs the older women to teach the younger women. So one way or another, there needs to be the ability for the older women in the body, those who have raised families, those that have been married, those that have been single for years, whatever their status, for them to be mentors and role models for younger women and to help them in various ways where men could not and where it's not appropriate for men to help and be involved. And then in the specific office of a deacon or a deaconess, I'm perfectly at home with a woman serving in that capacity. Hey, thank you for the question. I'm looking at my screen. We got a bunch of great questions ahead. And for the second, one phone line, phone line open. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on The Line of Fire. Hey, please be in prayer with me. My new book, Donald Trump is Not My Savior, an evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. The new book comes out on Tuesday. Uh, It's going to be at airport bookstores which is unusual for one of my books. Obviously, this is kind of a crossover topic, but it's really written for evangelicals, and it's it's really written with a hope to get people out and vote right principles, even if they have issues with personalities. So please be in prayer with me that God will use this book to make a real difference in many lives, that he'll get it out supernaturally as only he can do. But I don't mean people have dreams about it. I mean that he will back the distribution with his grace and uh, also, you can still get a numbered, signed copy of the hardcover at our website. That'll end uh, this weekend, AskDrBrown.org. All right, back to the phones. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Sean, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you for taking my call, Dr. Brown. Good to talk to you again, as always. Yes, sir. Hey, I had a question. Uh, and I'm asking you certainly to get your counsel on it as, as an elder statesman in the Lord, uh, the body of Christ. How do I reconcile uh, Holy Spirit-led biblical study with biblical hermeneutics? Um, I don't aim to study just for knowledge. Uh, of course, that, that is always in addition. But also to be holy and grow and conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. And I know... You know, in my experience with hermeneutics, of course, you you want to deal with context, historical background. But how am I able to balance that uh, in spirit-led study and not somehow grieve what the Holy Spirit is trying to illuminate to me by saying, oh, well, this, you know, this was 300 B.C. and it was, you know, applicable to Zechariah and Malachi in their yep. day. So yep. What would what would be your advice to that? And second part of the question, what books on hermeneutics uh, would you personally recommend? Yes, sir. Okay, so num- number one, for me, the the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Now, that, that's not for me. That is truth, all right? The, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And uh, because of that, I don't find any contradiction between doing proper hermeneutics and 
having the Holy Spirit speak and open things up to me. So let, let me paint a picture for you. The, the five years that I was close with, with Leonard Gravenhill, he would often send me letters. And his handwriting was fairly hard to, to decipher. And the older he got, so I knew him from the ages of 82 to 87, the worse it was. But I would read it enough that I could really get used to, to reading it and understanding it. Well, some years afterwards, I took out some of the letters I hadn't looked at in years. And I thought, yikes, I, <laughs> I, it's really hard to understand what he's writing. I'm going to have to look at the script really carefully and then see which letter is which, etc., etc. Okay, well, I do that, and then there's a date on the letter. I can put it back in context with what book I was working on or what happened in, in my life at that time. So that's, that's like hermeneutics. That's like exegesis. Okay, what exactly does the Hebrew mean? What does the Greek mean? What do the translations differ here? Okay, what was the contemporary background, the cultural background to this? I'm just trying to understand the words on the page. Now, I need those words to, to apply to my life. So as, as I'm listening uh, to the Old Testament and audio Bible now and going through numbers, and it's just a lot of details about the census and the priest doing this and that, and it seems to have almost no relevance to anything in my life. I'm still praying, Father, what are you saying through this? What am I to get through this? Open my heart, open my mind, give me insight. So as we're reading the word, we're always doing that. And I found this to be a useful exercise at times when I felt kind of stuck or the word seemed dry to me, which means there's something wrong on my end. I would get on my knees and read whatever I was reading out loud and pray over what I was reading. Father, what? I don't understand this. Oh, Lord, okay, I see that, but how do I get there? So I would just kind of turn it all in, into an ongoing uh, conversation uh, with the Lord. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that we are open to the Holy Spirit leading us during our study. In other words, we feel prompted, we feel stirred. Dig in deeper here. Dig in deeper. And many times, because the Holy Spirit knows all things and we don't, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to dig for something, and it's, it's kind of like the right place to look for treasure, if you know what I mean. That's like, I just got, I want to pursue that. That's interesting. And when you dig, you begin to make these amazing discoveries, and the Word opens up to you. So there's the systematic reading through the Bible, and there's also the targeted study on specific passages. So I'm looking for the Holy Spirit to open my heart, to speak to me through the Word, and change me by the Word. And I'm looking for the Holy Spirit to reveal insight into the meaning as I'm studying. And I'm looking for the Holy Spirit to direct me in my study. Uh, just looking for a couple of titles. Well, one in particular, Craig Keener wrote a book in 2016, Spirit Hermeneutics, Reading Scripture in Light of Pentecost. Spirit Hermeneutics, Reading Scripture in Light of Pentecost. I think that would be a great read for you. Craig sent me the book. I looked at parts of it and, as always, was blown away by his combination of, of scholarship and spiritual insight. So that'd be a good one to look at, Spirit Hermeneutics, Reading Scripture in Light of Pentecost. And if you have my book, Authentic Fire, uh, in my book, Authentic Fire, I have a, a chapter on spirit and truth. Where I kind of open left brain, right brain ways of thinking. Uh, Authentic Fire responds to John MacArthur's Strange Fire. I think you'll find that helpful as well. And sir, thanks once again for another excellent question. 866-348-7884.
Uh, let's go to New York. J.D., welcome to the line of fire. Hey, God bless you, Dr. Bob. God bless you. Uh, I, I wanted to ask a question. So uh, recently I was preaching at the, the Celebrate Israel Parade in New York City, and mm-hmm. I came across a Jewish gentleman who said that, because um, uh, I always preach from the prophecies, and I, and I brought up Micah 5, too, which is, um, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall I bring forth to, of thee one to be a ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old, of everlasting. Yeah. And I told him that the word Olam means everlasting, and then he said, no, it doesn't. It means uh, um, around the earth or something like that. And I looked into I looked into the, the Torah, or sorry, I looked into... Um, different Tanakh, the Jewish Tanakh, and they had a different translation to that. And I was, I saw all the Christian Bibles had um, everlasting, but the other one said all around the earth. That kind of changes the meaning, so I had a question about that. Yeah, okay, so uh, let, let me square one thing uh, away. The word olam in Hebrew can mean eternal or way, way, way back ancient. There's a, a separate word olam which is world okay so okay. if if you know when when we describe god as as melech olam king of the world or king of the universe olam could mean world olam could mean uh, universe all right but uh that's that fellow was just confused it certainly has nothing to do with world there in context it either means from eternity or from ancient days so uh one translation says this, but you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathi, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, there are rabbinic interpreters going way back that understand this to be a prophecy of the Messiah. The question is, is it saying that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which is a totally valid way to read it, or that the Messianic lineage goes back to David who was from Bethlehem. Is that what it's saying? Um, To me, saying it goes back to David does not do justice to the words uh, that are are used here, uh, which is um, uh, mikedem, which is from from of old, uh, mimeolam, which is either from eternity past or from from ancient, ancient days. Olam can mean either. Uh, For example, uh, if you say that, that, a a servant will serve you forever, right? You know, if he says, I want to be your servant and I want to serve, it just means for life. There are times, uh, even within Micah, where Olam means ancient days, and there are other times in the prophets or in the Psalms or say Psalm 90 that God is from Olam to Olam, right? That, That he is everlasting. So it can be used either way. And that's why Christian interpreters might interpret it one way and Jewish interpreters might interpret it another way. But I would simply say that you could make a very good case, A, that it's talking about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem and not simply being a descendant of David, which everybody knew, right? There's no reason to have that in the prophecy. And two, to say that the language used does not just mean going back to David, but somehow uh, the Messiah goes way, way back. And even rabbinic literature would say before the world was created, that the name of the Messiah or the concept of the Messiah was in the mind of God. But you could say for sure that the, the most simple and logical way to interpret this is that the Messiah himself will be born in Bethlehem, that's one, and number two, that his origins 
or from antiquity or from eternity, that it, it is either explicitly or implicitly pointing to a pre-existent Messiah. You could make a good argument for that. So you can't argue that Olam always means everlasting, but you could say this is telling us the Messiah will hail from Bethlehem and his origins go way, way, way back. That you can safely say, and perhaps even to eternity. So thanks for the question. I do treat that in volume three of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. We have a substantial discussion on this, volume three of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, where I deal with Messianic prophecy objections. All right, we will be right back and continue with your calls. My joy, my privilege to be here to do my best to give you solid answers from the Word of God. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, my only regret on Fridays after the broadcast is, is that I can never get to everybody's questions. And uh, well, I, wish, I wish I could. I love and thoroughly enjoy being able to answer your questions and help sort things out biblically, spiritually, theologically, culturally, We'll do our best to keep doing that. You can always write to us via our website at AskDrBrown.org. We have a team working with me to try to help answer your questions. That's also the place to go if you appreciate what you're doing and want to stand with us as a monthly supporter with a one-time gift. AskDrBrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. All right, we go to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. And we start... We're going to start with Jan in Indiana, but we won't. She was asking, or he, I'm not sure if it was a he or she. I just didn't see it on my screen, though. Uh, about the condition of the church after the midterm elections. I plan to do a live stream on the Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page Monday night around 9 in the evening. I plan to do a live stream. We'll be talking about my book, which is going to release the next day, but talking about evangelicals, Trump, the elections, Keeping our testimony, uh, I, I voted for Donald Trump. If it was him versus Hillary Clinton today, I, I'd vote for him. Once again, I'd vote for him without hesitation if it was him versus Hillary. And when he makes public comments, I feel they're inappropriate or unhelpful, like joking with the, the, the Republican that he was campaigning with who had, who had body slammed a reporter. And yeah, joking about it, but there's not time to joke about that. There's, there's violence out there and there are people inciting violence and you just don't joke about that. You'd be, a, be strong and forceful. You don't have to joke about that. But you're weakening him. If you, I'm not weakening him. I'm getting more people to say, hey, okay, I don't like that, but I believe it's better to vote for this than for that. That's all. It's, it's meant to be positive. But my number one goal is not supporting Donald Trump or not getting Republicans elected or Democrats elected or Supreme Court nominees appointed. My number one goal is to honor the Lord and preserve my testimony as a witness to the world. Everything else is secondary to that. Everything else secondary to that. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Shannon in Winston-Salem. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello. You're on the Hi. air. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Hello. Go ahead. Are you there? 
Yeah. Oh, yay. Okay, good. So I um, have encountered um, someone out in the marketing field, and um, I was speaking to him. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I was talking to him, and he's like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. There's a lot that's happened since I've seen you, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, yeah, you got a divorce. And he's like, how did you know that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, well, it's just that, like, little Holy Spirit voice that just kind of says it, and I just kind of go with it. And so we got to talking, and he, he was like, so, yeah, I am divorced. I'm like, well, what happened? He was like, um, you know, we're just, I'm Jewish, and she's not. And so um, he was like, it's just not going to work out. He was like, she she doesn't have the same belief. And I'm like, but you guys have been married, like, for a long time, right? He's like, yeah, we've been married. You know, she was 19. And so I said, I'm just, it's really sad. As long as I've been a Christian, I don't really understand the difference between Jewish belief and Christian. I know it's different, but so I looked at him, just real kind of funny, but not funny. I was like, so your belief and my belief, they're not the same, right? Like, I know that. But he's like, oh, no, no, way different. And I was like, okay, how different? Like, how different is that? I was like, I believe, you know, the Holy Spirit. That's how I feel like I knew it, that you were going to divorce with your wife. So he was like, no, 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 way different. It's just way different. All right, different. so, yeah, like, so, yeah t- t- tell you what, just just to jump in to in uh, for respect of time, because I, I know there's more to the story. So the fundamental question, though, is the difference between Jewish and Christian beliefs? Just basic, yes. Got it. Okay, so to make it as basic as I can, originally, in the beginning, you had Christianity springing up among Jewish people. These were just competing beliefs among the Jewish people, some believing that Jesus was the Messiah, other Jews believing he was not the Messiah. Over a period of time, they really separated. One went the way lies, and the other went the way of the teaching of the apostles. One said that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save us from our sins, and without faith in him, we perish. The other said that God's calling is for us to keep his laws and commandments, as written in the five books of Moses and expanded through the traditions of the rabbis. And that's how we get right with God. And we are praying for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah comes, he'll bring the Jewish people into obedience to God and establish God's kingdom on the earth. So fundamentally, as a, as a Christian would say, we come to God through Jesus. And the most important thing is that we put our faith in Jesus to save us and forgive us and then to give us a new heart to follow him and serve him, with our primary emphasis being on the teaching of the New Testament, with the Old Testament as a foundation. For a traditional Jew, the, the great height of what God did was giving us the law at Sinai. So rather than looking for something that we move on to, that this is God's means of salvation and teaching and edification, and therefore the focus is on Torah, and Messiah is ultimately one we pray for, but the daily focus is on Torah and obedience to God and keeping commandments. So for a Jew, spirituality is found in keeping the commandments and Sabbath observance and daily prayers in, in preserving the, the holy days and the calendar and things like that. That is how spirituality would be expressed. And for a Christian, it would be more in a devotional way to God through Jesus and then living out a godly, holy life. So while there are many areas of parallel, and when we both consider the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to be sacred, uh, there are some real fundamental differences. Uh, I do have a video that does talk about the, the 
origins of things called uh, how, how did the church get cut off from its Jewish roots? You'll find that interesting. How did the church get cut off from its Jewish roots? Saying that, that we had more in common at one point as the church became primarily Gentile, it developed in some new and different ways, some positive, some negative. Also, my book, if you want to get a book to read up on this, Shannon, it's called 60 Questions Christians Ask About Jewish Beliefs and Practices. 60 questions. So if you search for my name on my website, uh, you don't have to search for my name on the website, but otherwise at Amazon or bookstore and look for 60 questions. 60 questions Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. We lay out a lot of those differences there. So thank you for the question. Much appreciated. And, and also, as you sound like you would be a charismatic believer, there would be a greater emphasis on the role and work of the Spirit today among charismatic Christians than among uh, Jewish people and traditional Jews. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Bakersfield, California. Joseph, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure thing. So two quick questions. Um, One, just out of pure curiosity, what is your preferred English translation of the Bible? Uh, (laughs) That's not a simple question for me, actually. I, I don't have one in particular because uh, of using the original languages and being kind of nitpicky about it. The one that, that I have been involved with most is the Tree of Life Bible, which is a, a wonderful translation that preserves Messianic Jewish insights and Jewish background and is unique in that it was done by a team of scholars, both uh, Evangelical Christian and Messianic Jewish. But having said that, I preach when I travel out of the 1984 NIV, which is no longer available just because I like the way it reads. When I'm just doing a study online, then I'm, I'm often using the ESB, the NET, the CSB, and then for Old Testament, the new JPS version. Uh, but on my computer, I've got a ton of different versions. I compare them as, as I'm going. Uh, but the one that we most actively have distributed is the Tree of Life Bible, which is a unique project that we think is excellent and enlightening for many. For some, it's a bit more Jewish-rooted than, than they're used to. Uh, but not a simple question for me uh, because of my background. All right, go ahead. That's awesome. I'll have to check out that Bible. Yeah. Um, so my second question for you would just be, um, I guess, the Armenian perspective on uh, Romans 9. Uh, I myself claim to be an Armenian, but I also wrestle with the Calvinistic theory. So if you could just give me your explanation on uh, Romans 9, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, if you want to dig further, there is a website of uh, uh, Evangelical Arminians that has a lot of great resources. If you just search for Evangelical Arminians, a lot of great resources, and they'll link you to, to various commentaries, like Grant Osborne's commentary on Romans, for example, as an Arminian scholar. Um, so that's, that's a good resource place for you, is the Society of Evangelical Arminians. They have a Facebook page as well. But uh, Romans 9 would arguably be the strongest passage that a Calvinist could point to, coming from the end of mm-hmm. Romans 8 into Romans 9, speaking of God's work from eternity past in, until eternity future on behalf of the elect. And then the argument would be that each rational pushback, each human pushback 
against God's sovereignty and God's predestination is met with a rebuke, like, who are you to tell God what he can and can't do kind of thing? Uh, so mm-hmm. that, that would be a reason why many Calvinists would read that and think slam dunk, clear, uh, obvious. This is, this is supporting Calvinism. The reason I differ with that is that we have the whole book of Romans leading up to that, which, in which Paul tells us how we get right with God and, and the role of faith and the, the, uh, the fact that if it's by, by grace, then it's not a work. If it's by faith, it's not a work. And I believe the better way of looking at this, especially if you think of Jacob and Esau, is, is calling to service, not calling to salvation, but calling to service, that God raises up Jacob and his descendants, not Esau, uh, to be his firstborn and through whom the Messiah will come and to have the law revealed to them and the special entrustment from God, which doesn't seem fair to others. And the question is, who are you to argue with God? And even, even if God decided, I'm going to predestine one to damnation and another to salvation, he can do what he wants to do. He's God. We don't have the right as, as the clay uh, to argue with the potter. Uh, he's going to do what he wants to do, and all we can do is bow down before him and shut our mouths. But Paul, if you keep reading, he keeps talking in Romans 9, 10, 11 about people refusing, God reaching out, people refusing. All day long, he says, I've reached out my hands to a disobedient people. So he's saying, I'm calling you and you're refusing. I'm reaching out and you're rejecting. And then by the time we get to the end of Romans 11, it says God's concluded all under unbelief, which is Jew and Gentile, all under disobedience and unbelief. And that's all there is in the world, Jew and Gentile, that he may have mercy on them all. So I believe if we keep reading through that we see that Paul's great argument is all human beings consigned to sin, fallen under disobedience, so that God may have mercy on them all. Hey, thank you for the question, 866-34-TRUTH. We'll do our best to get to as many answers to your questions in the few minutes we have left. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. 866-348-7884. Hey, if you live anywhere near Charlotte, North Carolina, See if you can find time this weekend, tonight, tomorrow night, Sunday morning, to join us at Fire Church. We're right near the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's our annual missions conference, 19th annual conference, I believe, this year. You'll be hearing from our missionaries around the world. When I say our missionaries, I mean folks that studied with us, were sent out from us, that are just serving the Lord all over the world and making a great impact for Jesus, touching many, many lives and you'll be stirred, you'll be encouraged. Yeah, we raise money for the missionaries, that's why we have these conferences, but trust me, we leave, those that are there, hearing, receiving, we, we leave the most enriched of all. So, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Franklin in St. Augustine, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, I appreciate you taking my call. First off, just wanted to say I've listened to you for a long time. It's the first time I've actually called in. Good job. Um, I, am a torch, I am a torch bearer, and I would uh, just want to give a shout-out to anybody out there who wants to help help you. I uh, appreciate everything that uh, God does through your ministry, and so I uh, just want to let that out, leave that out there before I get to the question. 
Um, one of the things that uh, I have noticed recently, and this probably isn't a new uh, thing for atheists uh, to push back on, but it's something interesting that I've discovered the past uh, few times, is that one of the things that they're doing is that uh, they're making uh, uh, what they're highlighting the discrepancies between the New Testament authors when they quote the Old Testament um, and pointing that difference out and then ascribing that to some point further point to say that the New Testament authors were dishonest or too stupid to quote correctly, which neither option seems like a good option. But obviously the difference is Septuagint versus Masoretic. And I was wanting your opinion about that. How do you, when you, you know, when that's sort of thrown at you as a Christian, what I'm really confused, I guess, at this point as to why there is that difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic. And I was hoping you could speak on that. Yeah, sure thing. So, we do not have the earliest copies, the first copies of what Moses wrote, what Isaiah wrote, what Mark wrote, things like that. We have copies of copies. And my most recent video, my most recent Consider This video, asked the question, can we trust the Bible? If you haven't watched that, it's on our, on our website, sdrbrown.org slash consider this. Uh, can we trust the Bible? I explain how we have copies of copies, but that they were meticulously copied and carefully copied because of which we're very confident of the text we have, that the, the Bible, far and away, I mean, nothing's even within the universe of it, is the most carefully copied ancient book, collection of books uh, that exist. I mean, com New Testament writings completely off the charts in terms of what's attested, how far going back compared to others. So the question is, why are there some differences in the Hebrew text, which is normally called the Masoretic text or the Masoretic textual tradition, why are there some differences between that and the Greek translation called the Septuagint? Well, the first thing is it's a translation. Every translation is going to read differently. You put a hundred of the top Hebrew Greek scholars in the world in one room, and you give them, well, just passages from any ancient Hebrew document, any ancient Greek document, you know, a page long, and you have them all translate independently, every translation will be a little bit different. That's just what happens when you translate. So again, the Septuagint is a translation, but in many cases it's excellent. And when the New Testament writers are writing, they're writing in most cases to people who read Greek, some that's their primary language, some that's their only language, right? So if, if I'm going to look up the verse that they just sent, let, let's say I'm, I'm writing to you and you can only read English and you have the NIV, that's the only Bible you have, or you have the ESV, right, or the King James. If I quote something different than that and you look it up in your Bible, it's, what happens? It's going to seem different. In other words, if I come up with my own translation, so they were simply using the commonly used translation of the day. I, we all do that. In other words, we're not all freshly trying to come up with a new translation. But there are times when the New Testament authors explicitly departed from the Septuagint, uh, obviously because they didn't like the way it was translated, and they translated directly from the Hebrew. We have Matthew doing that, for example, in Matthew 8, verse 17, about healing, where the Septuagint spiritualized the Hebrew words, and Matthew wanted to emphasize, no, these actually have to do with sickness and disease. So all you have to do is just understand uh, every translation has to make certain decisions. Every translation is a commentary in itself. So because the New Testament writers are writing in Greek and they're quoting from Hebrew, 
there's going to be interpretation that's taken for granted. What we believe is that it's a right and fair interpretation. Now, the other thing is there are places where the Septuagint may preserve the original reading. Now, we'll be able to verify that because we have other ancient Hebrew documents predating the Masoretic text that read the same way. And then we have other attestations, say ancient Aramaic translations or an ancient Latin translation that will all say it the same way. So this is a science called textual criticism. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of the Lord told me or I had a vision. It's a matter of looking at thousands of ancient documents and fragments and saying, okay, this is the most accurate reading here. And we have it attested in multiple ways. So this is just further evidence that God has faithfully preserved his word. Uh, a, a mocker is not going to care about serious evidence and scholarship. Serious scholarship is going to say, wow, God's word has been amazingly preserved. But Franklin, thank you for your faithful support uh, and thank you for your kind words, friends. A torchbearer is someone, because everything fire, line of fire, fire ministries we have for years. Uh, a torchbearer is someone who stands with us, part of our faithful team, giving at least a dollar a day or more per month. So if our ministry is worth that to you, a dollar a day or more, $30 or more per month, then every month we send you a new audio message to inspire you, an insider prayer letter letting you know what's going on and what's coming next. We also give you a 15% discount in our online bookstore. Uh, if you take a trip with us to Israel, you save a few hundred dollars just in that as a, as a discount and um, get access to online classes we have. So a way that we minister back to you in many Many ways. Go to the website, ask Dr. Brown, ASKDRBrown.org. Click on donate monthly support. You'll find out more there. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. 866 truth Let's go to Adam in New York. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Uh, God bless. Thank you for all you and your team are doing. And I am a monthly torch bearer. So thank you. Well, for wonderful. Too straight. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Thank you. Um, hopefully you'll understand my question here. It comes from Exodus 2018, 19, mm -hmm. reading the Tree of Life version. Thank you yeah. for your efforts on that. So I was listening to a rabbi recently, and from, from what I understood the rabbi was saying, he stated that the people asked for Moses to speak to them, and not God, because they actually died a few times because their soul couldn't be contained within their bodies while they were listening to God. Angels had to subsequently come down to resurrect them after hearing the first few commandments, and then they asked Moses to speak to them instead. So if you have heard about this Jewish tradition or commentary and agree with it or you've heard about it, doesn't this kind of make the case that Jews shouldn't object so strongly or at it all to believing that Jesus Christ is God in flesh as our souls are a piece of God or are God, why is it so difficult to believe that Jesus is also God, Got predicated it. on what I've just said here about yeah. this supposed commentary right. by the rabbi? Thank you. Okay, so yeah, so first thing, Adam, is that this is pure midrash, it's pure homily. There's there is zero evidence for it whatsoever. Now, uh, you, you do have a, a a secondary question to this, which is important that I want to get to, but just to emphasize. Rabbinic tradition claims that it was only the first couple of commandments that were spoken, and then the people said, we can't take, stop, stop, stop. 
and then God spoke the rest to Moses, and Moses spoke to the people. That, that's plainly wrong. The plain reading of the text indicates God spoke all 10 of these words from Mount Sinai, at the end of which the people were overwhelmed and said, don't, don't, we're going to die if you say this. So were they dying and being raised back up? No, no, zero. No truth to that. However, however, rabbinic Judaism, there are aspects of it, especially in its more mystical branches and some of the Hasidic thought that are more pantheistic. In other, in other words, that God is in everything, that God is in nature, and that human beings have a certain spark of the divine within them, especially Jewish people. And that an exceptionally righteous person has even more of a spark of the divine within them. That's why some followers of Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, who died at the age of 92 in 1994, uh, went as far as saying that he in some way was God incarnate because their, their mystical beliefs gave, uh, gave way to that. But your normal traditional Jew would say, no, there is a distinction between God in himself and the essence of God in nature or the essence of God on some level in human beings. So I, I like where you're going with your question. You're saying it's a matter of degrees. And if a human being, in a sense, could be an offshoot of God on some level or have in some way a divine essence, then doesn't that open the door for the concept of the incarnation? Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's something to pursue more with a more mystically inclined Jewish person or perhaps like the type of person you spoke with. But it's not an argument that I would make because I, I disagree with that concept based on Scripture. In other words, I don't see God in a pantheistic way like that. But great question. Everybody else, so sorry I couldn't get to more of your calls. We'll go for it again next week. And oh, special series we're going to start on Monday. Don't want to miss that. Have a great weekend. <laughs>